morning, Illuminate. Great to be with you all. Welcome those of you joining us online as well. This morning we're going to continue in our study in the book of Acts. So if you got your Bibles, we're going to jump right into it. Acts chapter 8. If you were here last week, you know that things got kind of intense because in chapter 7 we read about the first Christian martyr. His name was Stephen. As a result of his death, things totally changed for Christians. Persecution becomes the name of the game for those who are living in the city of Jerusalem. It was no longer acceptable to claim the name of Jesus. It was no longer acceptable to say, I'm a follower of Jesus Christ. So what happened as a result is that Christians begin to scatter. They disperse. They move from Jerusalem to the outskirts, the area of Judea, and beyond that into Samaria. And what's remarkable about this is that it's literally the fulfillment of what Jesus said was going to happen. That's why our author, Luke, he begins in chapter 1, verse 8, by saying this. He says, but you will receive power, and the Holy Spirit is going to come upon you. And then he says, you're going to talk about me. You're going to tell others about me. That is, you're going to be my witnesses. It's going to start in Jerusalem. Then it's going to spread to Judea. Then it's going to go to the the region of Samaria, just outside of Judea, and then we're going to take this thing worldwide to the ends of the earth. What's the catalyst for that to happen? It's the persecution that comes as a result of Stephen's death. Christians are now scattered. But here's the thing. The cool thing about it is wherever they went, they just kept talking about Jesus. See, it was never a question of, should I talk about Jesus? The question was, where? Where? It's like wherever we go, we're going to tell the message. And why is that? There's only one reason, one good reason why Jesus was on the lips of every Christian at that time, and that is this. So many of them experienced his resurrection. I'm talking literal, his physical resurrection. Even his earliest followers were in serious doubt. After Jesus was crucified, they're all huddled together, and they're like, oh, they just killed our leader. What's going to happen to us? This could be very bad for us. What are we going to do? And then Jesus appears, and suddenly it's like, game on. Jesus, you did what you said you were going to do. That means you are who you said you are. You are the Messiah. You are the Son of God. You did conquer death. This message has to be told. Persecution breaks out. Christians scatter. And it's literally the beginning of the film of Jesus' words when he says, we're going to take this message worldwide to the ends of the earth. And that's the catalyst for it. Now, when we get to chapter 8, some very unexpected things happen. There's a report that some Samaritans are responding to the message of Jesus. You say, why is that unusual? Because up until now, it was thought that Christianity, Jesus, was just for Jews. Jews who had recognized Jesus as the Messiah. But now there's this report coming back, as, the, as expressed from Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, they're encountering Samaritans, that Samaritans are responding. Now, the Samaritans are a very interesting group. They were considered half-breeds. They weren't full-blooded Jews. And because of this, the Jews and the Samaritans, they did not play together at all. In fact, when Jesus encounters the woman at the well, there's this exchange between the two of them. She actually says, how is it that you, a Jew, are speaking to me, a Samaritan woman? Then you get this parenthetical statement in case you don't understand. Literally, the text says, 
the Jews had no dealings with Samaritans. Didn't want to have anything to do with them. They were considered half-bloods, unclean. But now the message is getting back. <gasps> They're responding to the message of Jesus and placing their faith in him. It's so hard to believe that they have to send a couple representatives out just to verify that it's actually happening. Peter and John. And I can imagine the scene. They roll up on him and they're like, okay, now where are these Samaritans who are supposedly responding to, to Jesus? And faith? They're right over here. And so Peter and John lay hands on them. And then all of a sudden, every doubt is removed because the Holy Spirit comes upon them. God is doing something that no one saw coming. He's expanding his family to include a group that was previously rejected. If there is one overarching message through the book of Acts, it is this. Jesus is who he said he was. He did what he said he was going to do. His people believed it. There's this thing called the church that was born. And the church is something that has never been experienced. Listen carefully now. In the world. The church is so unique. In that under its roof. You have two groups that were formerly hostile towards each other. Coming together. And so what happens in the last part of chapter 8. Is something even more remarkable. Because maybe. Just maybe. God would open the door. And extend the invitation to become part of his family and his household. To those who have half-blooded. Jewishness in them. But what we're going to see in our text this morning is something that is so hard to believe that it will literally take years for some of the early followers to believe it because God is doing something that radical. Now, the Bible is relevant and transcends all times and all cultures. And if there was ever a moment in human history where the world needed unity, it's now. Because what is the one thing that unites all of humanity? Sin. We're all sinners. I mean, that's one of the most easily verifiable truths of the Bible. We all do things that hurt others and hurt ourselves. We don't like to, to admit that. That's kind of hard. That's usually because we're stubborn and we're full of pride. But that's the reality of the situation. You want to know why the world is so jacked up? Because of me and because of you. And so, everyone is in need of the grace, the mercy, and the forgiveness that Jesus brings. This is why Jesus is the great unifier. And so, what you see in Acts chapter 8 is especially compelling because there's this, there's this individual who responds to the message of Jesus, and he's an Ethiopian. Now, a lot of ink has been spilled, specifically speaking to his race and ethnicity, and some think that this is the first Gentile convert. In other words, God might, might bring to faith Samaritans because they're half-blood Jews. But someone who is from Ethiopia, who could be, uh, who had no Jewish blood in them at all, how is it possible that someone like that could be included in God's family? I actually don't think that's the momentous thing about this man. It's not the fact that he's an Ethiopian. It's the fact that he's also described as a eunuch. Now, I know at, uh, you know, 11 o'clock on Sunday morning, you didn't come to church fired up to talk about eunuchs. But guess what? It's in the text. So we talk about it. And actually, this little detail, it's huge. 
It's, 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 it's much more significant than you know. Because according to Deuteronomy chapter 23, verse 1, we're told that eunuchs were excluded from the corporate worship of God. Why is that? Well, we don't know exactly, but some think it has something to do perhaps with the fact that for the Jews, sort of that defining physical characteristic that one belonged in the family of God was circumcision. In fact, it's going to sound kind of weird, but the Jews had this belief that Abraham was stationed before the gate of heaven, and it was his job to inspect every male to make sure that he was circumcised. That's how important circumcision was as an outward sign that you belonged in the family of God. And so if you're a eunuch, you've been physically emasculated. That really doesn't apply to you. Therefore, you're excluded from God's family. That's one thought. The other thought is that in many of the pagan religions at this time, they actually practice physical bodily mutilation. And they made themselves eunuchs as a way of saying, we are loyal to our pagan gods to the degree that we will sacrifice our bodies. So we don't know exactly what's, what the reasoning is, but that's what the Old Testament states. The eunuchs were excluded from the worship of God. But here's the thing about it. Things were going to change. It wasn't always going to be like this. In fact, God actually had a plan to include them. Because hundreds of years before Jesus came, the prophet Isaiah in chapter 56 said this, For thus says the Lord, To the eunuchs who keep my Sabbath, so now this is God speaking, specifically to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbath, who choose the things that please me and hold fast my covenant, I will give in my house and within my walls a monument and I will give them a name that is better than sons and daughters. Maybe, just maybe, God would choose to include Samaritans. But the thought that God would include someone who had this kind of physical mutilation, completely and totally unacceptable. Until now. But if you read the Old Testament scriptures carefully, you realize that it was actually God's plan all along to include them in his family. And this is how it happens. Chapter 8, verse 26. Now an angel of the Lord spoke to Philip. And he tells him, rise and go toward the south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place. And Philip gets up and he goes. So God uses this angel to communicate to Philip. And that's what, what angels are. Literally, angels are God's messengers. Philip is told where to go, but he's not told what he's going to do. And I don't think he needs to be told what to do because Philip is an evangelist. He's just like, wherever I go, I'm going to tell people about Jesus. Again, it's not should I talk, it's where am I going to talk. So he does it, he gets up, he goes, and this road is about 50 miles southwest of Jerusalem, and it, ultimately it actually leads uh, into Egypt. Verse 27, and there was an Ethiopian. Now we get to learn something about him. He's a eunuch, but he's a... Uh, He's also a very special individual because of what we read next. He's actually a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians. And he was in charge of all of her money, all of her assets, everything. This is, a, this is a very important individual now. He had come to Jerusalem to worship. And he was returning. He's sitting in his chariot, and he's reading the prophet 
Isaiah. So at this time in the first century AD, eunuchs typically comprised of one of two groups. Number one, uh, either they were slaves who had been made eunuchs to look after the king's harem. And if that eunuch did a good job, history tells us that he could rise in rank and literally become an attendant to the king or the queen. Um, At other times, this word simply refers to someone who directly reports to the king or the queen. So we don't know exactly uh, how this individual came to this uh, position, um, but we do know that he's a man of great significance and importance. He has a direct line to one of the most powerful rulers in the known world at this time. He's super rich. He has an entourage surrounding him. He's seated in his chariot, which tells you that the chariot itself is very luxurious. In war chariots, there's no seat. You stand. But this is the kind of chariot that would have an entire entourage taking care of. Additionally, he's a thousand miles from home. He's in Jerusalem. He's on his way back. He's been worshiping God in Jerusalem. What is he doing down this road? Clearly, this guy is committed to worshiping the Israelite God. But He doesn't know the Israelite God's son. He doesn't know Jesus. And if it was just enough to know God, the story might end here. So this tells you something because we've got a lot of people on the planet who are like, I just have a relationship with God. Jesus, I'm not so concerned about. Mm. That's why this story goes on. He knows about God, but he doesn't know about Jesus. But it's really, really interesting because he's reading this piece of Isaiah from the prophet, and he, as we'll see, doesn't really understand exactly what the meaning of the text is. How he got this, this portion, we don't know. Um, again, to have even just a small portion of something that was written on would be extremely expensive. Either someone of some influence gave it to him, or while he was in Jerusalem, he bought it. He certainly had the means to be able to do that. Verse 29, the Spirit says to Philip, I want you to go over to this chariot. No other direction given. Just run up alongside this chariot. Philip ran to him, heard him reading Isaiah the prophet, which makes sense, by the way, because when we read, we kind of read in, in silence, like in our minds. But back in the day, they were always reading out loud. So he hears him, and he asks, do you understand what you're reading? See, Philip knows he can read the words, but he wants to make sure he understands the meaning. You know the language, but do you know the meaning? Verse 31. And the Ethiopian says, how can I understand unless someone guides me? I need some help. And so he invited Philip to come up and to sit with him. He's like, I don't understand. I've got got questions. Do you know what the meaning of this is? Here, come up here. Come up here. Come up here. Take a seat next to me. Now, the passage of the scripture that he was reading was this. Like a sheep, he was led to the slaughter. Like a lamb before its shearer, it was silent. So he doesn't open his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was taken away from him. Who can describe this generation? For his life is taken away from the earth. There is no other passage in the prophet Isaiah's writing that so clearly and articulately 
articulately describes the suffering that the Messiah would endure to forgive men and women of their sins. Do you think that's a coincidence? This is like the all-time gospel setup. Several years ago, I was in my driveway and I was assembling some furniture from Ikea and it only took me like 20, 25 hours. <laughs> oh, oh, you know, you're gonna lose, lose your religion right there, right? Right in the instructions, man. It's like, come on, Ikea. You gotta be partnering with Chick-fil-A drive-thru or something. You guys need some help. And my neighbor walks out and she has the phone in her hand. And she says, hey, Jason, it's my brother Michael. He has some questions about Jesus. And I thought, you know, since you're a pastor and all, maybe you could answer him. <laughs> and I said, I'd be happy to talk to him. Hey, Michael, it's Jason. How can I help you? Can you tell me why Jesus had to die on the cross? Yes, I can. And I shared the good news. I shared the gospel. And I took him through Romans and explained that we're all sinners separated from God. And that's a big problem for you and I. A holy and righteous God can't turn a blind eye to all the junk that you do in your life. Otherwise, he wouldn't be just. He has to deal with all the wrongs. And unfortunately... The wrongs actually require death. That's how serious our wrongs are. We take them very lightly. Well, check that. We take the wrongs that we do lightly, what you do. Now, that's offensive. But we're all in the wrong. And we all deserve death as a result. And so when Jesus was on the cross, the Bible says the life of a creature is in its blood. That's why Jesus had to die. That's why his blood had to be spilled was so that his death could take the place of your death. And if you've embraced Jesus' death as your own death consequence for sins, then God looks at you forgiven and you receive his grace and his mercy. And that's why Jesus had to die. So he ends up coming to church he ends up getting baptized. He ends up freeing himself from some of his addictions. It's been a long, long road for the brother. But it's like the Holy Spirit just tees it up for Philip. Who's he talking about, the Ethiopian asked. Is he talking about himself or is he referring to someone else? And Philip just swings. Then Philip opened his mouth and beginning with this scripture, this was just the starting place for Philip because he knew his Bible. He told him the good news about Jesus. Effective evangelism requires you, Christian, to know your Bible. In fact, if you don't know your Bible, it's been said that people are maybe one or two questions away from having their entire world turned upside down. Here's one of those questions. Why do you believe what you believe? Christian, you got to be able to answer that one. Because if you don't, I can tell you right now, you're always going to be shallow. Why would you give your life to something you're not totally convinced of? You're smarter than that. Why would you do that? 
See, Philip knew his Bible. So beginning with this text, so what he could have done and probably what he did do, he says, okay, we'll start here. He's talking about Jesus. Jesus is the one that was going to suffer and die for your sins. Oh, okay. And you know what? The prophet Isaiah also talks about the specific detailed manner in which the Messiah was going to die. Isn't it interesting he describes death by crucifixion hundreds of years before crucifixion would have been invented by the Persians, perfected by the Romans, and yet all the details are there. Or he could have gone to Psalm 22 and he said, you see, when Jesus was on the cross, he cried out these words. It's the very same words that the psalmist said that the Messiah would cry out. Or he could have gone to the prophet Micah. He said, let's look at what Micah says. Micah says that the Messiah is going to be born in this little podunk town of Bethlehem. Oh, and another, another prophet says that, that the Messiah is going to be raised in Nazareth. See, all of these things came true in the life of Jesus. If we're not talking about the G- Jesus as hundreds of years worth of fulfillment of Old Testament scriptures, who are we talking about? I mean, with great specificity. So he knew his Bible beginning with this text, and he explained it to him. Now, let me pause here for a second. Verses 26 through 35 answer a question that plagued me and my faith for years. And perhaps you've struggled with the same question. Okay, here it is. What about that person living in some remote part of the world that has never heard the gospel? They don't even have a Bible. You know, it seems really unfair that they would be born, live, and die never being exposed to that message. You know, that just doesn't seem right. What about that person? You ever had that question before? I hope you have. Because if you haven't, you're not thinking through your faith. The book of Acts removes all doubt. The book of Acts answers that question. Because what you see is example after example of someone who is sincerely seeking to know God. God sovereignly and supernaturally provides that person with the means to discover who Jesus is, and therefore, salvation is brought to that individual. This is an Ethiopian eunuch, a thousand miles from home, who needs to know Jesus in order to be saved, and he happens to have this portion of the scroll that articulates so well who Jesus is and what he came to do. And then God supernaturally supplies Philip. That's why it doesn't matter to me anymore. There would be some guy in some remote, undiscovered tribe. If that man or woman is sincerely seeking to know the God of the universe, God will somehow provide that sincere heart with the message. I'm fine with that. I've got example after example in the book of Acts. No problem. I don't struggle with that anymore. You know what else is a really, really interesting thing about this? This is, this is really hard for my friends who believe in, in a Darwinian evolution, even neo-Darwinian evolution, when, when they say, when they realize that, you know, when, we, when, when there's this some uh, undiscovered tribe, it's, it's, it's unknown to the outside world, and then all of a sudden we realize, oh, wow, we're the first to make contact. You know, it's amazing in every single situation. You know something about that tribe? They worship. Isn't that interesting? They worship something. It might be the ground, the rocks, the trees. Where do you think that came from? Where do you think that sense of transcendence, something supernatural, something bigger, bigger than ourselves is out there? God has planted that within every human heart. In fact, the scriptures say God has planted, and here's the word for it, what is it? Eternity. Isn't that interesting? God has planted this sense of eternity in every human heart. This is why people who lay their heads on the pillow at night, I tell you, at some point in your life, you're asking yourself, is there something more? 
What happens when I take my last (gasps) breath? Then what? Where does that sense come from? So I don't struggle with that question anymore because my Bible answers it. Example after example, people's sincerity is the key. God will respond. And that's exactly what happens with this Ethiopian. Now, one more thing I want to cover quickly. There's something else remarkable happening in this text. The interaction between Philip and this Ethiopian, it actually holds the interpretive key to the entire Bible. Let me say that again. If you want to understand the entire Bible, you have to understand what's happening between these two men. The interpretive key to the entire Bible is right here. And I'll show you how. All the way back in Genesis chapter 12, God comes on the scene in a really unique way. He chooses this man named Abram. Later, his name will be changed to Abraham. You know him better by Abraham. And he says, here's the deal. You're going to be my guy. We're going to have this special relationship. And here's the purpose of our relationship. People are known by the relationships they have with others. That's how we're best known, right? And so God says, people are going to get to know me by the way we interact with each other. By the way you respond to me and how I respond to you in return. People are going to learn things about me. So that's why we're going to enter into this relationship, all right? Then he makes three promises. He says, Abraham, here's what's going to happen to you. Number one, I am going to make you a great nation. Well, that turned out to be true. Because to this day, the Israelites and the Arabs both trace, trace their nationhood, right, or their nationalism back through the great patriarch Abraham. Then God said, I'm going to make your name great. Well, that came true too. Christianity, Judaism, Islam, all three of the world's major religions hold the name of Abraham in very high regard. That promise came true. But now there's this third promise that's mentioned. You can go back and read Genesis chapter 12. It's reiterated in Genesis chapter 15. He says, Abraham, here's the big one. Through you, every family on earth will be blessed. What does that even mean? What God is saying is that through your descendants, one will come forth. And this individual will be a blessing to all families, not just Jewish families, not just Samaritan families. We're talking Ethiopians, not just Ethiopians. We're talking eunuchs. Yeah. And so this is why when Matthew, who had a front row seat to the ministry of Jesus, when he sits down, he says, I got to tell you about this guy, Jesus, and my time with him. You know how he starts his account of the life of Jesus? With a genealogy. And he traces the line of Jesus back through, guess who? Abraham. Because his point is this. What God promised to our forefather Abraham, we saw. And now every family on earth is going to have the opportunity to be blessed through Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. This interaction is the interpretive key to the entire Bible. The rest of the Bible from Genesis chapter 12 on is God's outworking 
of that plan. The fulfillment is in Jesus Christ. The historian Eusebius tells us that according to tradition, this Ethiopian brought the gospel into Africa and Africa was super pivotal because it's believed that from Africa, the gospel spread all throughout the known world at that time. And eventually it would spread to America. I believe it's highly likely that we are here today because of this encounter between Philip and this Ethiopian. And there's more, verse 36. As they're going along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, Hey, here's some water. What prevents me from being baptized? Well, how would he know to be baptized? Because Philip discipled well, he gave full instruction. And he explained that baptism is all about identification with Christ. Does baptism save you? No. But it definitely, it removes you, it removes a bad conscience from you in not having publicly confessed Jesus as your Lord and Savior. So here's what happens today. We have people saying, I don't know if I want to do that because I don't like being in front of people. Okay, Jesus took some nails in front of some people for you. Or people might say, people might say, well, I don't know, what's the temperature of the water? (laughs) Okay. If you work through the New Testament, literally there's no such thing as a believer that has not been baptized. So, I I say it like this. If you haven't been baptized, you've got some unfinished business with God. This is why in the lobby today, Pastor Steve is out there. We have a baptism orientation class next week. The beautiful thing, the beautiful thing about hearing someone share their, their testimony, their faith journey, is that we're all reminded that God is in the business of changing lives. And that's what it's all about. And so here's some water. And he says, why can't I be baptized? And he is. Now, real quick. Those of you who have the English Standard Version, the ESV or the NIV, go ahead and read verse 37 for me. It's not there. If you have the King James, verse 37 is there. What's up with that? Right? I told you the Bible is a collection of mishmash stories and sayings and sentences, right? No. It's not there for good reason. That verse doesn't appear in our earliest manuscripts. So for performing a stringent text, if we see that's a good question, right? How do we know what we have is accurate? Because we have all these tests of what's called canonicity. And so there were certain rules that had to be applied, otherwise that document was, wasn't going to make it in your Bible. Okay? That's why some of our uh, Catholic friends have apocryphal books. These apocryphal books are written at a far later date than the eyewitness accounts that you have in your New Testament. Okay? So they didn't fit the strict test that was required. Okay? So that's good. So this verse isn't in the earliest manuscripts, but don't let that freak you out because it doesn't really change the meaning of the text at all. And if our, if our intent is to get to the author's original intent and writing, then I believe it shouldn't be there. But let me, read, let me give it to you. We do know that it appears about 200 years later, and this seems to be uh, the, the kind of thing, the words that were said when one was baptized, and this is what it is. Again, it's in the King James Version. I'll read it to you. 
Then Philip said, If thou believest with all thine heart, thou mayest. Mayest be baptized. And he answered and said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. So don't worry about it. Just because it's not there, it doesn't affect the narrative or the meaning of the passage at all. Verse 38. And he commanded the chariot to stop. And they both went down into the water, Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. And when they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord carried Philip away. And here's what's really interesting. Here's why I think the emphasis of this is all in the fact that this guy is a eunuch and not an Ethiopian. Because look at this description at the end. And the eunuch saw him no more. It doesn't say in the Ethiopian. It says in the eunuch. In other words, the emphasis is God is doing something nobody saw coming. Previously, those who thought we were excluded from that family of God are now in. And if the eunuch is in, everybody is in. And he went on his way rejoicing. But Philip found himself at Azotus, and as he passed through, he preached the gospel to all the towns until he came to Caesarea. So you might be thinking, look, look, look. I love the story of Philip. Man, Philip was, he, he was the man. I could never be like Philip. Wrong. Christian, you are Philip. You are. It's not, should I? It's where. You have a sphere of influence. There are people in your life who will listen to your voice before they're going to listen to mine. Because I carry the, pastor of t- uh, the title of pastor, there's a lot of people that are going to dismiss my voice immediately. They don't want to listen to what I have to say. But they'll listen to you. You have friends, family members, coworkers. It's the story of the 99 and the 1. He leaves the 99 to go after the 1 because the 1 is what? Lost. And so I think the prayer, though, is actually this. I think this is where it, where, where it starts. You ready? God, will you just stop me? God, will you just slow me down? Because it's like I wake up in the morning and I'm like, okay, I got to do this. I got to get this done. I got to this. Here's my day. It's all mapped out. And then you remember Philip. He, it's like he wakes up and he's like, it's not a matter of should I. It's just where. Okay, go, go, go down this road, Philip. I don't need to tell you what to do. You're already doing it. It's part of who you are. But we get, so, especially in the West, we get so distracted with our busyness and our schedule and our time. And it's like we forget the reason why God blesses us. God blesses us so that we, in turn, can be a blessing to those around us. God, will you just slow us down? It's like any amount of silence just just often just feels awkward. Will you reorient us to our calling and our purpose? Father, everything that you've given us, the spheres of influence, the people you've surrounded, none of that's by accident. It's all a part of your sovereign work. Father, our desire is to make the most of every opportunity but we have to be open to those opportunities. So God, as we come into this place, we experience so much joy and so much excitement. God, I pray even more so as we leave because we have this incredible privilege of telling others about 
who Jesus is and what he did on the cross to restore men and women back into a right relationship with the God who loves them and the God who created them. Father, you're so much bigger than what we think. God, help us to meditate daily on what you have for us. Quicken our hearts to the needs around us, the opportunities. Help us to know the scriptures well. And Father, in the end, it's all for your glory so that the name of Jesus Christ, as always, in all places, can be made absolutely known and be made famous. All for him we pray and God's people said, amen.